1: everybody. We have an awesome show for you today. We're talking about sex. Now that I have your attention, this subject conjures up a variety of emotions. It can either make you very uncomfortable and anxious, or you're like, yeah, sex, bring it on. The rest of you are somewhere in between. Now, even if you fit the first category I really encourage you to stick around for this episode. Our guest today is Sheila Gregor, author and blogger on Christian marriage and sex. I've been following her for a long time. Her ministry is life-changing. We are going to talk a lot about some very important topics today. Even if you're single or not in a relationship, listen anyway. We are talking about harmful beliefs that the church teaches regarding women, sex, body image, modesty, lust, porn. There will be something for everyone today, guys and gals. And this is a great time to have your teenagers or your preteens listening to this. Don't be afraid. We're going to use medical terminology and non-crass language, but Sheila is going to give correct, helpful information that will encourage you. And guess what? I will be giving away a copy of her brand new book, The Great Sex Rescue, right here. Now to get a chance to win, you will need to share my post for this podcast stating what was your takeaway from Sheila's interview. So either on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, You can also comment on my YouTube channel uh, for this episode. I'm still figuring out Instagram, so if if I am able to get a post on Instagram, you can comment on that too. Uh, If you are not on social media, you can still enter to win, go on my website and comment on my blog, your takeaway, or you can sign up for my mailing list. I got an advanced copy of the book and I have read it and it's incredible. So, the drawing will be in two weeks from today. Now, let me read some of her bio for you here. Sheila Ray Gregor is passionate about changing the evangelical conversation about sex. A popular speaker, marriage blogger, and award winning author of nine books, including The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and her latest book, The Great Sex Rescue, she wants to challenge Christians to go beyond pat answers on marriage to reach real intimacy. Sheila believes in authenticity and gives real solutions to the very real and messy problems women and couples can face. She and her husband Keith spend a lot of their time touring North America in an RV, speaking at marriage conferences, hiking in bird watching. The parents of two adult daughters, you can usually find her in Bellevue, Ontario, where she's either knitting, blogging, or taking her grandson out for a walk. All right, please welcome Sheila Gregor to the show. Thanks so much for coming on today. Oh, well, it's great to be here. This is going to be so much fun. Sheila is rocking the proverbial boat but she has brought some life preservers today. Am I right? That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. You have a life preserver right on the front of your book. So that's where I got that. So how did you become a Christian marriage and sex blogger? What was your background?
2: Oh gosh, nobody ever
1: intends to do that.
2: Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I was just in the typical mommy blogging world for a long time. I wrote some small books about housework and parenting and you know, all just childcare that kind of thing and uh 2008 I started blogging and again mostly focused on parenting and then, um, my husband and I were speaking at marriage conferences and we always got stuck with the sex talk cause nobody else wanted to do it. Uh, and he's a, he's a doctor. He'll talk about anything and I don't care. I'll talk about anything. So we kind of got slotted into the sex talk and we're Canadians, which isn't, you know, an overly large country. And so when it became clear that we would talk about sex, the Canadian, a Canadian magazine asked me to write about sex the promise keepers magazine had me become their sex columnist i did a couple of tv shows and all of a sudden i was just in this sex world again <laughs> not planned and then in 2012 i decided to embrace it and i wrote the good girls guide to great sex and ever since then my focus on my blog has really changed uh, at vacuum.com to be you know more about sex all the time but yeah it wasn't it, it certainly is not something that you plan on <laughs>
1: That is funny. I mean, sex is an uncomfortable subject for a lot of people and we don't really want to talk about it. You know, you hear the locker room jokes, but now did you have a a healthy view of sex growing up? I mean,
2: what were your years in your early marriage like? Um, I think I did. I had a healthy view. Um, and I was really looking forward to it with my then fiance. Um, and then I read a Christian sex book. I read The Act of Marriage by Tim LaHaye, which was the book oh, that everybody man. read. If you got married between 1975 yeah. and 1995, like mm-hmm. or 1976, I think is when it came out first. Um, and that book really wrecked me. Like, and I didn't realize how much until um, we started looking at our survey results, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. Um but I remember I read it in the bathtub, which is where I read all books back in, in those days and before Kindle, you know, when it was just still a book. <laughs> and I was about two thirds of the way through and I was just so angry because he, it felt like he was telling me, you know, this is what you're going to do. This is what's going to happen. He's going to touch you like this for eight minutes. Then he's going to rub here 237 times. And then he's going <gasps> to do this. And it just felt paint by number and very intrusive. And I had been looking forward to sex, but I had been looking forward to it as something which I discovered with with my then fiance, and it became this thing that was going to be done to me. And I remember thinking in my head, nobody has the right to just touch me without me saying yes. Um, and I went all cold and I ended up drowning the book before I even finished. So I just held it under the water and then I threw it out. But we really struggled for the first few years of our marriage because I had something called vaginismus, which is a sexual pain disorder where Mm -hmm. where the muscles of the vaginal wall clench so much that it makes penetration really painful, if not impossible. And that was really difficult to get over. And Mm -hmm. as I've looked back, I actually think and once we looked at the survey results that reading the act of marriage was something that contributed to it. It wasn't the only cause, but it certainly contributed to it. Yep. Yeah.
1: Wow. I don't I remember reading that book, but I don't remember having a the same reaction that you had to that particular book. But <laughs> it was a lot a lot of one sidedness, like it's all about um, you know, his pleasure, not a whole lot about ours, gals. So, you know, we're just going to throw the church culture under the the bus pretty quickly on this episode. (laughs) How has the church dropped the ball or failed in the area of human sexuality in the Bible?
2: I think we've we've really distorted sex um, from what the Bible says. Like if I were to say, you know, if I were to ask someone, did you have sex last night? The chances are you're picturing something very specific. Like, you think what I'm asking is, you know, did he put his thing into her and move around until he climaxed, right? Like, we're we're picturing intercourse. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you take that as the definition, she could be lying there counting ceiling tiles. Mm -hmm. She could be making a grocery list in her head, and that would still count as sex. Like, the only thing that matters in our definition is that he has a climax her experience is just irrelevant. And if she enjoys herself, that's a nice bonus, but it isn't something which is essential to what we define sex as. So it's like, he has fun. And if she has, she has fun, great, but it's a nice byproduct. It's not something that you aim for. Or even if you do aim for it, it's not necessary. And the problem is that this is the way that our Christian books have talked about sex. Like Emerson Edwards in Love and Respect, he says, Dude. if your husband is typical, that he has a need that you don't have. And he talks about how a husband has a need for physical release. And so he defines sex as entirely being about a man's physical release, which is not what the Bible says at all. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible calls sex this deep knowing mm-hmm. from Genesis four, Adam knew his wife and we laugh at God using that word, but actually I think he did for a reason because that word is the same word that's used in the Psalms. When, it, when David cries, search me and know me, oh God. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a deep longing for connection, for real intimacy. So sex is supposed to be intimate. We know from Song of Solomon that it's supposed to be pleasurable for both. And we know from 1 Corinthians 7 that it's supposed to be completely mutual. It isn't mm-hmm. something which is one-sided. And yet the way that the majority of our evangelical books talk about sex, it's something that he needs and she has to provide. And this mutuality and this intimacy is totally missing,
1: yeah, totally, and you did this huge huge research um, for your book, and what did you find when it comes to women and sexual satisfaction in marriage?
2: yeah, so what we did was i got I got really sick of reading um these best selling books and and seeing what i thought were really unhealthy teaching because i feel mm-hmm. like in the church we argue about doctrine a lot and we argue about teaching and we don't get very far cuz we talk past each other so we decided we were going to take it beyond just doctrine and teaching and look at the data, like what actually happened. So we surveyed 20,000 women. Like this is the <laughs> largest survey that has ever been done in the Christian world. Okay. And 20, I took the survey. <laughs> thank you very much. And it was long, wasn't it? Yeah. It was seriously And my husband, long I had my husband
1: survey. do it too. So yeah.
2: Yeah. We did a men's one afterwards as well. So like this was a long survey. Like it, it took about 25 minutes. And if you were divorced, it took even longer. <laughs> so you know, like this is a long survey. We had 20,000 women fill it out. And um, and what we were really measuring is how believing certain things, believing certain common evangelical teachings, how do those things impact women's marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction? And we found that there's a lot of common teachings that cause women's sexual satisfaction to plummet and rates of sexual pain to skyrocket. So it's just, it's not a pretty picture. You know, and one of the biggest finds, like, it was interesting when we looked at just sexual satisfaction alone, women actually had a higher orgasm rate than I thought they were going to (laughs) have, maybe because I write about sex all the time. And so people who are on my blog tend to have more problems because otherwise they wouldn't be on my blog like like people tend to have so i hear from women who are struggling all the time so we, i was actually pleasantly surprised that it was i think it was 40 48 to 49% of women orgasm almost always or always and i was like oh okay that's higher than i thought you know but mm. it's still 47 points lower than men yeah so we have a 47 point orgasm gap and that there's no reason for that. There's always going to be a slight gap, I think, because women, we we do tend to be more hormonal. Um, like our hormones influence our sex drives and libidos quite a bit, um, mm-hmm. and and so you know there's always going to be that gap, um, but it's not going to be 47 points. It does not need to be that high. And so mm-hmm. we need to we need to talk about this because it seems like in the church, the big problem. Like if I I asked on Twitter and Facebook, which message have you heard more often? Do not deprive your husbands or women's sexual pleasure matters. (laughs) And and you know what the answer is going to be, right? Yeah. 95% to 5%. Mm. 95% do not deprive your husbands. So we're talking about frequency, but we never talk about women's pleasure.
1: Most people don't believe that somebody can be raped in marriage. Tell tell us more about consent that you just mentioned.
2: Yeah, so you know one of our big things that we found um, is that our Christian books do not address consent or marital rape at all. Or if they do, they address it in a really bad way. So we um, we surveyed twenty thousand women, but we also looked at the ten best selling marriage books and the six iconic sex books. And then three of the best-selling marriage books just didn't talk about sex, so we excluded them from our study. So we had 13 um, Christian evangelical books on sex and marriage. And then we looked at the best-selling secular book, which is John Gottman's Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And of those books, only one of them had a robust conversation about consent. And I bet you could guess which one it is. (laughs) Yours. It's, it's Gottman's. Well, my, I didn't use. We didn't. We we excluded all of my books too. But John Gottman, the secular book, dealt with consent really well. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I read Christian, a lot of secular books. Um, yeah. Growing up, I thought they were really good.
2: Yeah, the Christian books did not. Now, Boundaries in Marriage does talk about boundaries really well and how um, it isn't okay you know, to, to insist on something and it's, and it is okay to take sex off the table for certain reasons. So boundaries in marriage certainly does talk about that, but what it doesn't talk about explicitly is what consent actually looks like in marriage. Um, but it did do a fairly good job. Like of all the books, it did the best job. So I don't mean to say that they were all terrible. Um, but in general, we just don't even use the word consent. Mm-mm. And in fact, a lot of books that we looked at actually had incidences of marital rape and they weren't even called anything bad. Like Willard Harley in His Needs, Her Needs was talking about this one guy, 32-year-old executive who complains that his wife has no libido. And he says, you know, I feel like I'm always begging her or even raping her, but I can't help it. I need to make love. And there's no commentary that raping your wife is not Okay. Like raping your wife is not okay. And you can't, you can't just throw that line out there and then not say anything about it. Like, just leave it hanging. Like you should be at least saying something like, Hey, if you feel like you're raping your wife, you probably are. And you should stop (laughs) because sex and rape don't feel like the same thing. Well, the churches
1: out there teaching from their pulpits that when you get married, your body belongs to your husband. Mm-hmm. And, but not so much about the other way around the, you know, the husband's body belongs to the wife. It was, it was always, you know, you don't, you don't
2: have control over your body. That is so damaging. Yeah. And it's really a misuse of 1 Corinthians 7. You know, because First Corinthians 7, 3 to 5 say it says that the husband has to fulfill his marital duties to his wife. So actually, the husband's duties are mentioned first, <laughs> which is interesting. <laughs> you know, and the wife has to fulfill her marital duties to her husband, and the wife's body does not belong to her, but also to the husband, and the husband's body does not belong to him, but also to the wife, and do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time that you can devote yourself to prayer and fasting. So that, that's what that passage says. And it's been used to tell women that you can't say no to sex because your body belongs to your husband. But yeah. that's a total misuse of that passage. Because when Paul was writing this in Roman times, husbands had absolute authority over their wives' bodies to the extent that they could murder their wives and not be prosecuted for it. Like You were allowed to murder your wife. Mm. And Paul turns around and says in that context, Hey guys, your wife has authority over your body in the same way. Like you have no more authority over her body than she has over yours. And that's the only time that Paul specifically talks about authority in marriage mm. and it's totally equal. Mm. So, you know, Paul is giving her authority over his body, which was totally revolutionary at that time. And the whole point of 1 Corinthians seven is that it's mutual. Is that sex is something which is mutual and life-giving. It's not talking about one-sided intercourse, because if sex is mutual, then that means that her needs need to matter. And sex where her needs don't matter is no longer intimate. So it's not real sex.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, like like what the Bibles the Bibles take is that sex is something which is life-giving, which brings you together, which builds your relationship. But sex where one person is using the other with absolutely no consideration of what they're feeling—that's not biblical sex. That's using someone and taking something, and that's not right. And so it's a total misuse of First Corinthians seven. I mean, you know, Kevin Lehman in Sheet Music says that when a wife isn't feeling her best or has really heavy periods or is, on, is in the postpartum phase, that she should give his her husband hand jobs when he's ready to climb the walls. Oh, so, you know, you're thinking, okay, so she's simply not feeling her best. What? So she has a headache, she has the flu, and she's supposed to give him a hand job, or she just pushed out a baby and she's not sleeping and she's supposed to like the the needs that are supposed to be considered here are his.
1: I mean, and, doesn't you know, the Bible talk about self control?
2: Exactly. It's a fruit of the spirit. And in another place, he says that um, a, woman fa- a woman can um, use oral sex or hand jobs during her period because her period can be a really difficult time for him. Oh, really? If he's trying not to use pornography. And so it's just this real downplaying of women's experiences. So to the extent that women just don't matter. Um, And our evangelical books do that again and again. Like many of the books say that you have no right to refuse sex. You have no right to say no unless you're praying or fasting. And that that leaves no room. Like there's no discussion. Well, what if she has sexual pain? You know, 22%, (laughs) yeah, like 22% of women had sexual pain in our survey, 7% to the extent that penetration was impossible. And they're being told, you have to push through. This is not a reason to say no, because there is no reason except for prayer and fasting. And I just, I just find that that is so harmful and, and really quite ignorant to not consider her needs at all.
1: No. And you know those that are going into marriage and learning all this stuff, it really it does not serve them at all. I mean, um, what are your your best tips for for people that are going to be married soon? What would you advise mm-hmm.
2: them? Well, you know, if you if you ascribe to a biblical sexual ethic, which I do, I'm I mean, I think that God made sex for marriage, um, that and He did that for. A lot of different reasons. It isn't just so that he could tell us, Hey, don't have fun. It's, you know, it's to protect you emotionally. It's to protect children, to protect families. There, there's a lot of good reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because sex is for marriage doesn't mean that as soon as you get married, you need to have sex or you need to have intercourse. Like what I want to tell couples is the key to great sex is not a wedding ring. And a wedding ring is not a guarantee that you're going to have great sex. Right. Like there's a lot of people who are not married who are having great sex, mm-hmm. and that should not make us who are Christians feel like, well, therefore the Bible's wrong. No, because it's not. It's not about whether or not you have great sex. The question is, what does sex mean? And that's why we're supposed to wait. Okay, but once if you if your aim is to wait until marriage then it's not wait until marriage to have sex, it's wait until marriage to have sex. But then once you are married, wait until you're really aroused and your body is asking for it. Mm. And I think it's that arousal piece that people are missing because we haven't taught women how to listen to their bodies. We haven't taught women that your experience matters. And so you know, in some of the surveys I've done, like 52% of women who, who didn't have sex until they were married said that they were not aroused. The first time they
1: had sex. Yeah. The, the, the husband's rip-roaring to go, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, she's not ready yet.
2: And that sets you up for really bad sex in marriage. And so if instead, you know, you've waited this long, so wait a little bit longer and just work on the normal sexual progression that often couples have missed. Like you don't go right from like a peck on the cheek to intercourse, you need to understand, like make out for a bit until your body wants to be touched and then touch for a bit until your body wants to be touched some more and learn how her body works, learn how her orgasm works because it it is a little trickier than his. But if you can figure out that orgasm piece before you even have intercourse, you're going to be so much further ahead (laughs) in the long, we have have an entire chapter on this in the book that we weren't actually planning on writing originally. But when we talked to so many women in our focus groups about that missing arousal piece and what a huge deal this is because they grew up with so many purity culture messages and so many Mm -hmm. messages like you need to be the gatekeeper. You need to make sure that you don't go too far. They were so used to being the brakes, like always turning Mm -hmm. it off that they didn't know how to listen to their bodies and how to tune in and how to just experience and so, you know, you need to go backwards sometimes and just give yourself that time to figure things out.
1: No, you're right about that kiss on the cheek to sex thing. Cause you know, in the churches that I was a part of you, you did not do anything but hold hands and that was only after mm-hmm. you were engaged. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of churches, they didn't even let you kiss and they get like, you know, maybe an hour of sex, sex ed during their premarital counseling but I don't think that's enough.
2: No. You know, and interestingly, we, we asked about the whole kissing before marriage thing. And if you were over the age of 60 and you took our survey, like 99% of women kissed before marriage. But if you were under the age of 40, it was only like 92%. So -hmm. it's still the overwhelming majority, but you know, did kiss before marriage, but there were that group that grew up in the really conservative churches where they stopped kissing. And it's like, I don't think people realize that, that it's actually more conservative now than it was when our grandmothers were getting married.
1: Wow. Well, that's really yeah. surprising.
2: Yeah.
1: How does previous sex experience, let's say they're not, they're not virgins.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What, what does a uh, previous sex experience play a part in shame? What can we do about that?
2: Yeah, I think that it does. Now we didn't actually measure um previous sex experience and how that affects your sexual pleasure today. Because you know, I did this, I did this project with my daughter um and a family friend who is an epidemiologist and a statistician, and my daughter was trained in psychometrics at university or the survey development. Um, and they were really adamant that they didn't want to contribute to purity culture. No. So they didn't, we didn't run the data. We have the data. <laughs> <We> have <numbers. laughs> Joanne's just never run it. And she's kind of refusing to, which is fine. I understand. Um, because we didn't want to add shame. Like, you know, we didn't want to say, yeah, if you, if you, wait until marriage, your sex life's going to be better because we were afraid, well, people already feel so much shame, we don't want to add to it. So we didn't actually look, but it is really true that a lot of people feel, like they're tainted goods now, Mm -hmm. if they did have sex before they were married, or even worse, if they were sexually abused, Mm -hmm. um, and that now they're damaged goods. And then again, that just stops you from being able to relax. It stops you from being able to experience. It can stop you from feeling like you even are owed sexual pleasure. Um, And we can see how those kinds of messages can really hurt women.
1: Yeah, we have a lot of survivors listening today, and they're wondering how they can heal from abuse. And work towards, um, a good sex life. How can spouses help with that? Is there anything we can do?
2: Yeah, I think, well, first of all, and I'm sure you say this a lot, so I'm, I'm only repeating what I'm sure that you're saying is, is, you know, if you are, if if abuse is part of your past, if trauma is part of your past, you know, please seek some help because there is help (laughs) and there's, there's wonderful trauma therapies now. And I think that's so important to access. Um, is to get, you know, licensed help people who, who are trained in trauma therapies and can help, help you walk through that. But I also think that one of the big, the big breakthroughs that so many people have told us in reading the great sex rescue is that just understanding the negative messages that have hurt them, that understanding that, yeah, I wasn't crazy for thinking that that was off. Like, like I do have the freedom to say No you know, understanding that this is a message that hurts other people too, I, I can give people so much breakthrough. So one of the most damaging messages, for instance, is the idea that a wife is obligated to have sex with her husband whenever he wants it. And we mm-hmm. kind of touched on that, yeah. you know, with the first Corinthians seven passage, but like when women believe that, um, their chances of experiencing vaginismus go up by almost statistically the same amount as if they had been sexually abused. Mm. Um, because both things are traumatic. Like abuse is obviously traumatic, but the obligation sex message says a similar thing. It says, You don't matter, he gets to use you, and your needs aren't important. Like it's the same mm-hmm. message as abuse, and our bodies interpret it as abuse. And so even just giving women the freedom to say no is so life-changing in so many marriages. We had so many stories in our focus groups of women saying, you know, they finally sat down and talked to their husbands about this and their husbands were devastated to know that their wives were making themselves do things because they were scared that he would watch porn or have an affair or be grumpy or whatever it might be. And the husbands were like, I never want you to do something you don't want to do. Like I, I don't, because a lot of times these messages are not coming from husbands. If they are coming from husbands, please get some help Yeah, because <laughs> that's not okay. But a lot of times the messages are coming from the books that we're reading and from the women's conferences we're going to, and just from the general culture that we're in. And these messages are often heard by women more than they are by men because it's women who read these books. And so guys often don't even realize what she's believing. And so when she was a, you know, we talked to woman after woman who said, yeah, when I finally talked to my husband about it, it was like I had this real breakthrough. And we agreed that if we're ever in the middle of sex and I don't feel like continuing, I can say no. And one woman, I think, I think we called her Sandra in the book, but she said when she realized that she had the freedom to say no, it was like her body actually changed Mm. (laughs) and she was able to start responding for the first time. Um, And so I think, you know, if you're a victim of sexual abuse, you really do need to get help. But even with that help, I think it's so important to recognize which of the beliefs that we have internalized have been hurting us and just give yourself permission to let those things go, you know, and to realize that, yeah, I do matter and God didn't create me to just be a vehicle for my husband's release. Like I'm not right. just a masturbatory aid for my husband. Like right. sex is supposed to be something which is uniting and life giving.
1: Mm-hmm. What kind of treatment did you get for vaginous, vaginismus?
2: Vaginismus. This was okay. I have a funny. Well, it's kind of a horrifying story actually. So this was the early '90s, and there wasn't a lot of help for vaginismus at the time. Like today, I would tell people. Go see a pelvic floor physiotherapist, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of really good treatments out there. See someone who's got extra training in pelvic floor issues, um, and that's my go-to. Okay.
1: Okay, great.
2: <laughs> uh, so go see a pe- but. In those days, we didn't have that, and I got sent to this um, obstetrician and gynecologist. Who said that the reason that I had pain was because I had sexual shame? And so, what he was going to do was he was going to put me on the examining table with my feet in stirrups and he was just going to touch all the different parts of me and help me name them with my husband there so that I could embrace my body. What? And I actually physically ran out of the room. I was because it scared me so much. And I was so. Upset at myself for not being able to do this therapy. And I felt so much shame about it. But now when I look back, I'm like, way to go, little 21 year old Sheila. Like, way to go. Yes. Because <laughs> all it was doing was reinforcing the same message that was causing the vaginismus in the first place. Because what was causing it was my feeling like I didn't have agency over my body. Mm-hmm. Like people had the right to use me no matter what I was feeling. And now he was telling me that I had to get up on this table and let him touch me. It's like, no, no, you don't just get to touch me like consent is a thing. <laughs> so
1: it would have been different if it was a, a female doctor.
2: No, I really don't think same. so. Okay. I think because, because I, I wanted to have, I wanted to have agency now with pelvic floor physiotherapy, they do touch you, but it's, it's for therapy. It's not just to make you embrace your body. Like that was just dumb. That was really mm. dumb. <laughs> well,
1: not knowledgeable at all in that. That's why I had you on the show. <laughs> but. You you talked about the p word earlier, porn.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I found out from your book that the porn addiction usually exists long before the marriage comes along. Mm -hmm. So why are women being blamed for the man's porn
2: addiction? Exactly, and you know I wonder how much of that's a generational thing. Honestly, like, I think part of the issue is that all of the men who are writing these huge, big bestsellers, they're all around 70 years old. Okay. And I remember, um, a woman sent me a program by focus on the family. It was from November of 2019 And one of the hosts made the comment that maybe the reason that so many men are turning to porn is because they're not getting enough sex at home. Now, this Mm -hmm. host has to be like 60 or 70 himself, okay? And for guys in their 70s, yes, a lot of porn use started after the marriage because it was after the marriage that internet porn became a thing. Mm -hmm. But for guys under the age of 40, the vast majority of them started using porn before they were married. I mean, we have the internet now, which is- And, and so you need to understand that dynamics are way different for people who are getting married today and for millennials. And maybe we need to stop listening to 70-year-old men <laughs> who don't know what they're talking about, quite frankly, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and start listening to people who have actually done research into this. Because yeah, the majority of porn use begins before the marriage. She is not the one responsible for it. And yet our resources tell her that she needs to have sex to keep him from watching porn, right? That's what Kevin Lehman says in sheet music. Every man's battle says that um, once he quits lust and porn, she can be like a merciful vial of methadone for him.
1: Mm, it sounds like it just would feed feed the problem that's already mm-hmm. there that we're not dealing with.
2: That's, exactly.
1: Her having sex with her husband whenever he wants it, I don't think that fixes it.
2: No, because, well, and the other thing is that it doesn't acknowledge that porn and sex are two diametrically opposed Mm, things. They mm. are not the same thing. You know, sex says, we are going to know each other. This is going to be intimate. It's going to be pleasurable. This is about us together. And porn says, I don't care about you. I get to use you in a degrading and often violent way. So your needs don't matter. In fact, if you have needs, that's a turnoff. Yeah. So, you know, porn is all about using someone and sex is about knowing someone. They're not substitutes for one another. And when they become substitutes, it's because he is treating sex the way he he treats porn. He is treating sex like a way to use her and to disregard her needs. And that's very common in all too many marriages. But if Mm -hmm. that's the way it's happening, that is not real sex. That is not biblical sex. And she has... Like, it would actually be a good thing if she says, I I want to make love to you. I want to have amazing sex with you, but I will no longer be used. Mm-hmm. And so if yeah. all you're going to do is use me, that is not going to happen anymore.
1: Amen. I think that porn is, is adultery, and I believe that is grounds for divorce, not yeah, really. I
2: mean, I think that every case is different. And I think mm-hmm. I you know, I, I've known a lot of marriages that have actually recovered from porn use, but mm-hmm. they only recover when he is really willing to do the hard work. Mm-hmm. And and he realizes that you can't you can't quit porn by just transferring your sexual energy to your wife, which is what every man's battle talks about. The way that you quit porn is by recognizing why you turn to porn. Like Michael John Cusick in his book, Surfing for God, which is a really good book about this. He says that porn allows men to feel strong without having to be strong. Mm. And so, you know, guys will turn to porn because it, it builds up their ego and it makes them feel like they're strong, like they're a man, but they haven't actually had to act strong or like a man. And so it just contributes to all this woundedness and you 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 hide and you have all this shame. And until you deal with that stuff, you're not gonna be able to get over this. Um, and so you have to be willing to really open up, to let people in, to say, yeah, I am really broken. I'm really messed up. I have really messed up. I have hurt everybody. I'm not a powerful guy. I'm really weak and I need to look at this. And until he's willing to do that, it's not gonna get better.
1: I mean, some people believe that Using porn doesn't hurt anybody, and it's better than having an actual physical affair. I'd rather my husband cheat on me with a, a, a an actual woman than be addicted to porn because I can't compete with that screen, you know. Yeah.
2: Well, the uh, other thing is, an actual woman would presumably be consenting. The majority of porn is not consensual, right. so when you're watching porn, you are masturbating to somebody getting raped.
1: Yeah, and that's the other thing is that it's um, it's no longer just vanilla sex. It's, uh, it is like, you know, raping little girls, it's animal, Mm -hmm. animal stuff. It's, you know, torture and it's no longer just, okay. The stuff that was out there when, Mm
0: -hmm. when I was
1: a teenager, you know, they had this the the scrambled, uh, the scrambled, uh, nighttime, um, Uh, sex, uh, sex shows. Yes, uh, (laughs) I remember that
2: too. I remember that too.
1: If you just kind of tilt your head a certain way, you could see something. But yeah, I don't think that uh, they're the same from what we were dealing with before and what we're dealing with now where sex is everywhere and you you can get the stuff on your smartphone and your, any tablet and TV and computer. It's everywhere. And it almost seems inescapable.
2: Mm-hmm. and you know one thing that's another belief that we found too is the belief that she needs to have sex to keep him from watching porn is also really widespread but it's also very um, associated with bad sexual outcomes for her so when she feels like I need to have sex to keep him from watching porn um, her arousal levels go down her trust in her husband goes down her marital satisfaction goes down all kinds of things
1: mm-hmm talk about modesty i think we talked about the purity culture but really popular in christian circles is talking about modesty that we have to you know wear our dresses down to our ankles and not wear pants and you know your collar up on top of your neck Uh, i'm a pretty modest individual to begin with but um a lot of the churches they're talking about that it's it's the woman's fault if she's wearing something like shorts or maybe a tank top, that it's her problem. It's She's the one that's making the men lust after her.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a very prevalent teaching and um, that we need to teach our girls how to dress so that they don't cause their brothers to stumble and all that stuff. But the problem is <laughs> that <laughs> as soon as you blame a woman for a man's sin, then you really, um, you excuse what he is going through, and you cause a lot of shame to her. And really, it doesn't matter what women wear, if he's going to lust, he's going to lust. I did, I did this blog post a while ago, what were you wearing when you were sexually harassed at church as a child? You know, because so many women had stories of young, being a young teenager, and having some elder make some gross comment to them, Mm -hmm. or some guy, and, And it was always, yeah, I was wearing a long flowery dress. You know, I was wearing sweatpants, like whatever. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. Mm -hmm. If they're going to be gross, they're going to be gross. But the problem is that it, by, by doing this, by saying that men are going to lust, we normalize lust and we normalize the idea that a man can't relate to a woman without sexualizing her and objectifying her. And that's not the way the Bible sees it. Like Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. Mm Mm-hmm. So he put the blame entirely on the man. Yeah. And he said, if you, you know, if you lust, you need to cut out your eye. So it wasn't that you need to do something to the woman. It was that you need to do something to yourself. Like he put the blame entirely on the man. And yet we tend to put the blame on the woman. Um, and, and when, when we put the blame on the woman, we are assuming that he is incapable of seeing her as anything other than a sexual object. And that is the root of a lot of our problems.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's if,
2: not, it's not what she wears. It's the fact that we're over-sexualizing all of their relationships between men and women. Yeah, right,
1: because there are definitely some modest people out there that they still get assaulted and harassed and raped. We got, okay, the Middle East, they're, they're covered from head to toe. Mm-hmm, Those mm-hmm. women aren't treated any better. Treated
2: no, and in horribly. fact, in many ways they're treated worse because it's assumed that she, it, it, they're seen as just sexual objects because... The problem is seeing women in sexual terms instead of as being made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about women as stumbling blocks, you see them in sexual terms, like the whole way that every man's battle treats lust, that you have to bounce your eyes away from the woman. And, and they talk about this like it's honorable, like in, in For Women Only, Shanti Felden talks about how honorable it is for a man to wrench his head away and refuse to look at a jogger in Central Park. You know, or, or her book Through a Man's Eyes describes how honorable it is that a man would turn his chair away from a coworker so that he wasn't looking at her. That's not honorable because all that's doing is still seeing her in the same way that lust does. Like what lust says is you exist as a, as a series of body parts. Mm -hmm. Well, when you bounce your eyes and wrench your head away, you're saying, yeah, you exist as a series of body parts. The only difference is where your eyes are going. You're still agreeing with the definition of women. What Jesus does, Jesus didn't refuse to look at women. What Jesus did was he decided to truly see women. And that's the difference is to see women as whole people made in the image of God.
1: Absolutely. Uh, We were watching um, Wonder Woman the other day. (laughs) And uh, I commented to my husband, I said that Gil Gadot, she's, she is a one beautiful woman. And, and he said, yeah, she's definitely, definitely a beautiful woman. And, you know, I wasn't upset about that because it's okay to notice the beauty of God's creation It's a different thing Mm to lust after somebody or treat that person as a sex object. I think I've I've uh, read in your blog talking about that all the time. There's there's nothing wrong with noticing uh, a handsome man or a beautiful woman. It's yeah. totally yeah. different.
2: Yeah, noticing is not lusting, and sexual attraction is not a sin. Right. The problem is when you look with deliberate intent to lust. You know, I'm watching Wonder Woman, my husband says he likes Robin <laughs> Wright better in that first movie where she's the Amazon because she's more age-appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> he says, but, you know, <laughs> but yeah. Love it.
1: What I like about your book are the actionable steps at the end of each chapter. You know, how to take our toxic thinking over here and turn it into a healthy perspective Mm -hmm. over here. Mm -hmm. So you've got all these exercises you can do with your spouse. Give us some examples of those in your book.
2: Now, first, okay so one of the toxic teachings that we that we found was really highly correlated with all kinds of really terrible things was the idea that all men lust it's every man's battle. And so we said okay let, let's rescue and reframe that saying. Instead of saying all men lust. Why don't we say many people lust. Mm-hmm. You know many people struggle with lust and often men more than women but many women too. But it's not a battle that you can't overcome you know, the Holy Spirit is enough for you. And the way that you defeat lust is by choosing to see others as whole people made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a much better message than just all men struggle with lust. You know, and that's that's another one of the problems that we have with so many of our books is that they do everything in gender stereotypes, right? right? Men want sex, women don't. Well, it's not actually that easy. Like 58% of marriages, yeah, he has the higher sex drive. But in 20%, she does. And in just over 20%, they're shared. Like this idea that only men have a high sex drive is just really not, it's just not true. Um, You know, and yet they all talk about how, like, yeah, if if your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. And that's just not so many experiences. But yeah, like we talk about how men are visual, women aren't. Well, increasingly Mm -hmm. brain studies are showing that's not true. You know, men lust, women don't. Again, increasingly brain studies are showing that many women struggle with this too. Men have a sex drive, women don't. Not true. Like, and so the more we talk about it in gendered terms, the more we just miss out on what's really happening in so many couples' lives.
1: Yeah. My husband jokes, about me and Hugh Jackman. So, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. yeah, he's great. He thinks I, I dream about him, but I'm like, no, I really don't, to be honest with you. But yes, I do admire his his talent. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about our young people here, because I did encourage folks to let their kids listen or their teens listen. How can we teach um, kids about sex without dying of embarrassment.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's important that parents realize that it's okay to be awkward. I think often we don't have the conversations because we think we can only have these conversations if we don't feel awkward. But sometimes stuff just is awkward. And that's all right. Like kids know it's awkward. They're not going to be all weird if you're awkward. Just embrace the awkwardness. Like that's, it's totally okay. Um, But I think the other thing is, is we need to stop talking about things as like this is a sin and we need to start explaining the why. (sighs) Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Like why does God want sex for marriage? Why is porn bad, bad? Like, you know, porn isn't bad just because it's a sin. Porn is bad because those are real people being abused. Mm -hmm. And porn is bad because it distorts your view of sex. And porn is bad because it can become a negative coping mechanism for you. So when you're bored, when you're stressed, when you feel rejected, when you feel lonely, you watch porn instead of learning how to deal with those feelings in a healthy way. So it can stunt your emotional growth. Like porn's bad for all kinds of reasons. And I think if we talk about those reasons, rather than just saying, don't watch it, we'd get further ahead. Um, And so I, I just think we need to have more conversations about yeah, just like, like, what is sex supposed to be? And why is it in marriage? And um, why is it not just about boys, but why is it about girls too? And, and stop the shaming messages, because I think that there's a, like, I think teenagers and young adults need to know that having sexual feelings is not a sin.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And feeling sexually attracted to someone is not a sin. (laughs) You know, it's good to have coping Skills so that you don't get frustrated. Like, it's good to say, okay, like if I'm really feeling sexually frustrated, here's what I'm going to do I'm going to go work out for half an hour. I'm going to go for a jog. I'm going to call a friend. I'm going to read a book. Like, you know, just have ideas and have a plan. But realize that the feeling itself is not sinful. Like, we're made Mm -hmm. for connection and we're made for intimacy. And Part of that is experienced in our bodies (laughs) and your bodies were made for that. Um, And that drive is not a bad thing, but realize that your fundamental drive is actually for intimacy and you can still be intimate without being sexual. You can be intimate with God. You can be intimate with friends. You can be vulnerable with friends and just find people who are safe that you can open up to.
1: I think um, my parents gave me a book. I don't remember the title of the book, but it was a cartoon book. And I had a pretty healthy sexuality um, growing up. I um, was very thankful for that. I went to the library and and got some books also, uh, Changing Bodies, Changing Lives. Have you ever heard that book before? I think so. That's what I had. And it's it's not a Christian book. It's secular. But I think I, I had a healthy view because I was not reading the church books. And it gave you real rubber meets the road stuff, real uh, accurate information. And um, I also had adult mentors who were not my parents that I felt comfortable asking questions. But um, I was um, groomed and fondled by a guidance counselor in eighth grade. And the reason why I healed from that was because I recognized that uh, for what it was it was he groomed me and i was able to escape but my parents believed me immediately mm-hmm. for when i told them what happened and the church uh, wasn't in the picture at the time but the school believed me and the police believed me and so my parents even though they were embarrassed to talk to me about sex they they at least gave me they gave me some books and i had enough sense to go and if I if I didn't want to ask my mom <laughs>
2: <a> die of <laughs>
1: embarrassment but my dad was always really quick to say it's making love it's not the f word yeah my girlfriend that was next door to me she would she was the one that gave me the graphic details of the birds and the bees using the f word No, it's not it's not uh, the f word it's making love and he was very careful to um say your body is beautiful and it's private and that was probably the extent of the sex education right from, right from my parents. But um, you actually have a course. We do. For sex ed that's really neat.
2: Yeah. It's called The Whole Story. Um, Not So Awkward Talks About Sex, Puberty, and Growing Up. And it's a video based online course that moms can share with daughters or dads with sons. Or if you're a single mom with a son, there's there's extra stuff for you there too, um, but the videos are done by young people. So the girls—it's actually my daughters who do the girls' version—and so they explain, you know, what a period is, what a tampon is, <laughs> like what sex is, um, how to decide about dating, how to set your boundaries, all of that sort of thing. And then the boys, their husbands, do part of it, and and the Sheldon Neal, the television personality, does does the other part of it for boys. So um, it's just it's just a fun uh, a fun way of introducing the conversation and that's how we we talk about it it's we start the conversation but you get to finish it with your kids so this isn't a replacement for mm-hmm. you it's just a tool a resource that you can use um, to open up those conversations
1: absolutely yeah you have other courses as well you know we're talking about your new book but you have uh, mentioned some of the other resources you have
2: Yeah. So, well, the new book is The Great Sex Rescue, and it really is. I think, I I just hope that so many people read this and um, uh, just realize how much the evangelical church has dropped the ball here. I think it's really affirming. It's so validating. So many people have told us that, oh my gosh, I just, I feel like I've really had a breakthrough after reading it, which is great. Um, But then if you, if you read this and you think, Oh, my goodness! Like my sex life should be so much better than it is. <laughs> you know, I also have an orgasm course because, hey, it's wonderful that forty eight percent of women almost always or always reach orgasm, but there's fifty two percent that don't. So <laughs> if you're in that fifty two percent, I've got a course to help with orgasm. Um I've got a help a course for boosting your libido and a whole bunch of other things. And then we have a really fun um thirty one days to great sex book. A challenge that couples can do together, um, yeah, just to learn how to have more fun in the bedroom.
1: Well, I know that uh, menopause is on the horizon for me. That would be a suggestion for me if you could uh, do some sort of a menopause book. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I took my done. sweater off during this podcast because <laughs> I had a flash. So there you go. <laughs> I'm not
1: looking forward to that transition, but um, yeah. uh, unfortunately, I can't avoid it. We, we had such a, a great time and wonderful conversation. Is is there anything that, that you wanted to say that I didn't ask you that I left out? I kind of tried to cover all the pieces.
2: <laughs> no, I just, I'm, I'm so glad to be able to come on more people's podcasts because I, I really think that, that, that the church is ready for a change. I really think oh, yeah. that we're all sick of this and we want to change the conversation about sex. And so I would just encourage you, You know, read the book, hopefully, but if not, when you see something out there, which talks about sex in a dangerous way, like whether it's love and respect or every man's battle or sheet music, whatever, like speak up, let's get these books out of our church libraries. Let's stop Mm -hmm. having courses on them in our churches, like speak up and say, Hey, that's not actually healthy. (laughs) And, and let's start looking for really healthy resources because we want to change this for the next generation. We really do.
1: Amen. We just bought a new fire pit outside, so you're all welcome
2: (laughs) to come over. We're
1: going to have a book burning. (laughs) uh, Listeners, there's lots of takeaways from our episode today. And just like I said in the beginning that I'm giving a copy away of Sheila's new book. So please share what you've learned on uh, social media to get entered into the drawing. because I want you to have this book. (laughs) So thank you again, Sheila, for coming on and taking time out to talk to us. And hopefully I can have you on again for the next book. That would be great. Thank you. (laughs) So how can you get Sheila's new book and connect with her? Her website is tolovehonorandvacuum.com. Her other website is greatsexrescue.com. You can follow her on Instagram. Sheila Gregor, on Facebook, Sheila Gregor Books, Twitter, Sheila Gregor. If you don't win in my drawing for her book, you can purchase her book at Baker Book House, Amazon, Christian Book, Quaron, Bookshop, and Indigo. This book will change your life. Now, if you have a perfect sex life and a perfect marriage... I'm sure that you can find somebody else that would need this book. So get a copy for them. It's not very expensive and it's a very quick read. It should only take you a few days to read with a consistent reading schedule. I think once you get started that you won't be able to put the book down. <laughs> this is really an excellent, excellent resource. I am so appreciative that you came on the show and that you were listening today. We're going to have another guest next week, actually in two weeks rather, is Pastor Jimmy Hinton. His new book, The Devil Inside, which is right behind me on my shelf. I just finished reading that last night. And he's got an incredible story, incredible ministry. I hope that you come and listen to him. We're going to be talking about pedophiles in the church. Unfortunately, Pastor Jimmy Hinton had to turn in his own father because they found out he was a pedophile. So come and listen to his story. Other future guests, we have Laura Padgett. And she is she is a dancer, and she uses dance as a healing tool. That is her ministry. And she is a delightful individual. So I'm excited for her interview. And we have Dr. Kelly Palfe that is coming on to the show. She is going to be discussing male sexual abuse and trauma. So if you have a loved one in your family who has suffered, invite the men in your life to come and listen. She's incredible. This episode is going to air the week of Easter, our Resurrection Sunday. So I hope you take the time to meditate on the truths of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection. That is our hope of healing is in Jesus, in his resurrection. But we wouldn't have salvation without the resurrection. We would be hopeless. So I hope that you take time to reflect on that. God bless. We'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.